Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. It's probably safe. So if you, probably the only downside here is cost. If you want mm. to out, like, you know, spend your money on collagen supplements, it might help. Um, it might not. And it probably isn't going to do you any harm. But if it were me, I'd spend money on SPF 50 and I'd wear every single day, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is what I do. As Caroline, I think Hiram says, if it's light enough to, to read a book, you should be wearing sunscreen. <laughs> That's a good advice there. <laughs> That's my take home message. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Skin, lifestyle and diet, perhaps some of the commonest things I get asked about by patients in the doctor's kitchen community and honestly, one of the least understood at this point. And in today's episode, we dive into acne, a bit about the gut-skin axis. We also talk about Dr. Harriet's background in science from the lab to the plate or pill. And we talk about our thoughts on collagen. Make sure you listen right to the end because I summarize our thoughts on diet, lifestyle, and supplements for healthy skin. So you don't want to miss that. The pod does get a bit technical in places, but don't worry. We will try and explain everything as we go along. It is always a pleasure having Dr. Harry on the pod. Her experience as both a frontline clinician, a scientist, and registered nutritionist really shows. And I love chatting to her. Dr. Harriet Holm is a registered nutritionist and former experienced pediatrician. After studying at Cambridge Uni, she worked as a doctor in the NHS for well over a decade before focusing on nutrition. And she also has a PhD in genetics and is a lecturer in nutrition. She's also authored two books that I highly recommend. One is called Eating During Pregnancy that she wrote to provide mums with credible information on pregnancy nutrition. And the other one is Postpartum Nutrition, an expert's guide to eating after a baby. And that was written to support new mums and their journey through motherhood and weaning. Dr. Harriet also has a number of virtual courses on nutrition on her website that you can check out at healthyeatingdoctor.com. Com, the links to which are all on the podcast show notes as well that you can find on the doctorskitchen.com. There's also an article so, to support today's podcast that you can find on my website, which lists some of the references uh, and the evidence base that we use for this um, episode. And I hope you find that a useful resource. So remember, listen right to the end. I'm going to summarize our thoughts so it's a lot easier for you. And also check out the doctorskitchen.com newsletter where I give you something to eat read, listen, or watch every single week that helps you lead a healthier, happier life. Onto the podcast. Hi, 
Okay, cool. So we're going to talk about one of the articles that are, is on the website that you've um, you've written. Um, it's all about skin, um, but we're going to dive into a couple of topics. So we'll talk about acne, um, atopic uh, skin conditions, uh, psoriasis, and obviously collagen, something that we are asked about quite a bit. Um, so why don't we why don't we start with um, with acne itself? What, what what do we mean by acne? Um, I think everyone kind of knows what acne is, but there, there are a bunch of different types. Um, so so how how do we approach acne from a sort of medical perspective? First of all, um, so acne there are lots of different types, but the main one I'm going to talk about is acne vulgaris, and that affects up to ninety percent of teenagers. And we don't really know quite why it happens, but um, but there are some certainly some pretty decent theories out there. And the first of all is that you've got sort of three primary factors that are implicated. So you've got the sebum over secretion, so it's sort of oily greasiness. And then you've got these cells called keratinocytes, which are part of your normal skin. They um, act abnormally, so they desquamate and they, they obstruct the ducts in the skin. And then you've got superimposed inflammation, which is mediated by bacteria. And that's either called Propiobacterium acne or Cutibacterium acne. It's recently changed its name. So um, it's probably more likely to see it as Cutibacterium acne. And it's all thought that those sort of things together um, cause acne. And um, obviously it sort of commonly affects those teenagers. And that's thought really because at puberty, you've got activation of those sebaceous glands from your hormones which causes an increase in sebum production. And then actually that changes the microbiota of your skin. So just in the same way that you've got all of those um, bugs in your gut, you've actually got a whole pile of them on your skin as well. And so that changes the makeup of, um, changes the conditions and then changes which bacteria have dominance. And so if you've got that, that greasy sebum production, it's the cutie bacterium acne then that thrive in those conditions and then cause inflammation. So that's probably what happens um and it's really interesting that that bacteria has a role in sort of inducing the inflammation and activating probably these other pathways which i'm sure we'll talk about in a minute but they are sort of igf1 mac and nf kappa b pathways and that's sort of thought to be a sort of mechanistically plausible way that acne happens yeah it's, it seems like uh the gut uh and insert organ slash axis uh, is sort of being uh, discussed for, for everything these days. And, and, and in the article, you, you talk about this gut brain skin axis and, and how there's the presence of uh, bacteria all over our body, all over the skin, I should say, in varying amounts. And according to different life cycles as well, it can change. Um, is there something unique during puberty um, where we can see the, the differentiation of the different species at, at that particular time? So if you think you've got, um, in the skin microbiota, it's actually affected by body sites. You've got moist, sebaceous, like your face, and then dry. So moist is sort of groin areas and armpit. And then you've got sebaceous, like your face, and then you've got dry, which is sort of like the rest of your body. And it's mm. really interesting how the microbiota, so the bugs that live in those different places are actually completely different. And... And during puberty, the, the, your skin and your face changes and becomes sebaceous. And that's why kids aren't really affected with acne, because it's effectively a dry area and it's got dry um, bacteria that live on it. So as it changes and as those hormones during, pregnant, um, during puberty change and you have that drive to increase the sebaceous production, that that then creates a, an area, a, a sort of conditions that help the, the acne bacteria to thrive. And that's what causes it. And so it's really interesting then that you've got, you know, if you think of why acne forms on your face, it's because that's the area where it's sebaceous. We mm -hmm. think that's where cutaneous bacteria acne is thriving. It's not thriving on other areas because it's not sebaceous. It thrives on your face, your, your chest and your back mainly your face but for example you don't get acne on your arms because it's a dry area or you don't get it in your axilla normally or your groin because they are moist and they've got different bacteria so it's really interesting how it does seem to be uh, really important what your species are back you know what bacteria are growing as to how you know if your susceptibility to acne yeah, I think most people might be forgiven for thinking of acne as purely an aesthetic problem. That's something that you grow out of. But this is something that 
covers, you know, it can create a lot of uh, psychological distress. I mean, certainly when I was a teenager, I had really bad acne, um, really bad. And to the point where I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I, I would actually, um, I would put makeup on my, on my skin to hide just how bad it was when I went to school because I was so, I, I was just so embarrassed by it. And I, mean, I know a lot of uh, people go through it and stuff, but for me, it was it was particularly bad. And I, I, I've still got ice pick scarring, I think, because I didn't have the confidence to go to my GP at the time and actually speak to them about it and get treatment at the time because, yeah, I, I don't know, I, just, I was just, you know, going through all the, the changes and stuff and, and finding out who I was as a person all the rest of it. But I've still got like um, ice pit scarring. Um, and and I, I guess, you know, I, I, we're going to talk about food and and uh, all the other lifestyle elements, but I wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from from seeing their GP in their first instance to get um, treatment in the form of pharmaceuticals if they needed to. Absolutely. And I actually spoke to Dr. Justine Cluck, a consultant dermatologist who specializes in acne on my podcast. Mm-hmm. And we were talking exactly that about um, how much it's associated with um first of all vanity and people thinking that oh it's just some spots you know why are you bothered about it or why do you should you get treatment or or coping with it and about how much it really does affect people and I have um I didn't suffer from acne particularly as a teenager but I have adult acne occasionally and well it's going through a quiescent phase at the moment but it's really miserable and I you know totally sympathize um but one thing that's actually really interesting is that acne and anxiety and depression often coexist and that's possibly not because having acne is so miserable but because there's actually uh actually a link there between the gut brain skin axis Mm. and that the psychological stresses so we stresses you know when you're stressed um actually can can impact the gut bacteria to produce different neurotransmitters so those are signaling molecules or they trigger nearby uh endocrine cells to release neuropeptides and so that that may well lead to a change in intestinal permeability. And that then means that toxins and bugs and um, partially digested food can all get into the bloodstream. And they then seem to actually be um, deposited in the skin and cause inflammation and maybe cause acne. So this actually may well be a link, you know, sort of almost cyclical thing that you know chicken and egg if you Mm. if you're having psychological stresses maybe you're more likely to get acne and then therefore you may be more likely to be stressed by it because obviously it's pretty unpleasant and how do you really um how do you unpick that and resolve it It's, it's quite i think it's quite challenging and i think the more i understand about about the sort of microbiota both the gut and the skin and the respiratory i think yeah how complex it is and how it's all interrelated and how um, just tiny changes can just put you completely out of balance and the wide ranging impact, you know, just your diet and changes in microbiome can have. Yeah, that that's so wonderfully explained, you know, just thinking about all those different multifactorial processes that could lead to uh, acne or a whole bunch of other conditions, frankly. Um, you mentioned intestinal permeability, sometimes colloquially referred to as leaky gut. If you type in leaky gut into PubMed, you're not getting anything. But if you type in intestinal permeability or hyperpermeability, you'll, you'll probably find a lot more in the way of academic um, uh, literature on the subject. That for me is quite fascinating because, again, it all boils down to um, anything that impacts uh, uh, inflammation within the gut itself. So how you're nourishing your gut. I'm jumping ahead a bit because we're going to start talking about foods and prebiotics and probiotics and, all, and the potential role for them as well. So um, I'm going to stop myself there. Well, before we go into uh, some of the, the dietary uh, adjuncts, um, treatment-wise, uh, I know from a general practitioner's perspective, we try and uh, look at hygiene initially. Now, a lot of people might be thinking, if you scrub harder, you get rid of that, that, off, that off bacteria, that's what's going to Uh, resolve it that's not the case right (laughs) no and absolutely and acne as well is not caused because you haven't washed your face enough absolutely not Um, sadly it'd be great if you could just wash your face a bit harder and it all washed away but actually really interesting the cutibacterium acne actually forms like some other bacteria do a biofilm and they they make this sort of self-made matrix of extracellular um, compounds so uh, substance which actually prevents um, antibacterial agents and you know your own anti-inflammatory cells coming in to disturb it and certainly that's seen on the skin it's seen with other bacteria in the in the you know in the lung pathology so it's 
it's not easy just to get rid of it and certainly scrubbing or you know certain agents um you have to overcome that biofilm but um there are anti-inflammatory and antibacterial topical agents like azelaic acid um isotretinin and then you've got your um antibiotics which you're aiming to really kill that bacteria and uh and try to get rid of it there are obviously some problems with with these things which is why you really need to speak to your ideal gp or you know consult dermatologists um because one of the sort of downsides of antibiotics is that while you're reducing the the, the bacteria that's causing or linked with acne it does actually increase other species like pseudomonas by quite a significant amount you know five to six times and that's why you can sometimes actually get sort of associated folliculitis so that's a, an infection of your your hair follicles um at the same time as having antibiotics so while you're you know killing off or reducing your target um, bacteria other bacteria then have a chance to thrive and and they may not always be the ones you want um so and and also you've got that sort of challenge of um increasingly becoming resistant to certain types of antibiotics not just in you as an individual but as you know a global challenge that we are increasingly seeing antibiotic resistance problems and that is is challenging so if there was a better way of maybe treating with you know certain um sort of immunomodulatory you know bacteria or probiotics or changing that skin microbiota in the future you know there'd be a really great treatment and and would um solve a huge and unmet need i think but we're, we're nowhere near that at the moment but it would be great yeah definitely um with regard to uh skin products i mentioned sort of you know what i used to put on my skin and stuff is there um evidence around the the type of moisturizer particularly you should be using i.e one that doesn't block um the natural pores that could lead to increased production of the sebum leading to acne um uh, particularly for for teenagers or or even in adulthood as well yeah you should use a non i think it's called comia comiogenic i think it's called so it's a specific type that doesn't block your pores um because greasy skin products that block um block your pores can increase your risk of you know get the comedones the blackheads forming more easily and it trapping the 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 bacteria you don't want yeah yeah um brilliant okay let's let's get to dairy uh and diet because i know i know i'm i'm i everyone always whenever something comes up on on instagram or or social media i'll give my response uh and then somebody in the comments will say just get rid of dairy just get rid of the dairy that's the issue for a lot of people uh and it's not as simple as that at least not from the research that we currently have um, and, and as where anyone who's been listening to the podcast is aware, you know, nutrition research is very, very difficult to draw conclusions from. So, um, but, the, but there is a potential mechanistic reason as to why dairy might be problematic for certain people. Um, so yeah, so let, 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 let's tackle dairy. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. It is really difficult to unpick this and think, um, it's quite a nuanced topic, dairy, um, I should say that the sort of the most comprehensive guidance on diet and acne comes from the 2016 American Academy of Dermatology guidelines. And they don't think there's enough evidence um, to suggest that you should give up dairy. So I think that I'll come with that statement first and then discuss Mm. sort of why dairy is important. So really dairy when you break it down into amino acids it promotes insulin secretion insulin we we know drives the glucose into your cells where you can use it Um, but it also is related to insulin um, growth factor like one uh, synthesis so it's igf1 synthesis and igf1 has a number of different roles Um, so it influence it induces this other uh, pathway this other enzyme called foxo1 which senses cellular nutrition and that can trigger um mtalk1 which is a governor of cell proliferation so that's how your cells reproduce how quickly they're turning over and also um it can lead to sebaceous hyperplasia so by that the sebaceous glands those oily greasy those oil producing glands on your skin they can start um getting bigger and producing more oil so that may be um one factor it also igf1 stimulates follicular growth 
and keratinization, all thought to be related to acne and androgen hormone production, which uh, again related to acne, which is why um, women with PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, are at higher risk of acne because they've got higher androgen hormones. Mm. Um, and then all of those factors together um, are sort of formerly a mechanistically plausible explanation as to why if you having anything that's raising your IGF-1, um, you may well increase your risk of, of acne. And there's some studies that support that. So they've shown that in people with um, polymorphisms of IGF-1, um, so that means small genetic changes, not mutations, but just small genetic changes in IGF-1 are actually associated with acne. And, um, and they've looked at plasma levels of IGF-1 um, in, a, in a small study of just 80 people. And they looked and they found that actually uh, the levels of IGF-1 correlated with the severity of acne. So all of that together does sort of form this sort of mechanistically plausible explanation. Um, and, and then milk also not only is the sort of the breakdown of the amino acids driving um, IGF-1 synthesis in your own body, but it also contains bovine IGF-1 and dihydrotestosterone DHT, which is a precursor of IGF-1 as well. Mm. So you can see then that you've got your own endogenous production of IGF-1, the exogenous bovine um, IGF-1, and it's uh, you know the precursor, and why therefore um, it's possible that, that dairy does impact it. So there've been a number of studies that have tried to sort of see if that really does happen in the real world. And one of them is a Cochrane review and Cochrane review being, you know, one of the, the highest forms of evidence, really it's a huge meta-analysis looking at lots of randomized control trials, trying to put it all together and work out what the, what the outcome is. And they did find that dairy, especially skimmed milk um, did increase acne, but a number of the trials really were not very rigorous. And, and so actually it's quite difficult to draw firm conclusions from it. A number of other studies have found um, a link with, with milk, but not with yogurt and cheese. Maybe there's a soluble, fat-soluble protective factor, or maybe it's just that all dairy has a negative effect. It just wasn't picked up on mm. that study. And then there's another meta-analysis um, that partially overlapped with the Cochrane, so included some of the same studies, and they found that all dairy increased acne. Um, again, whey powder is part of the building blocks of dairy, um, has been found to sort of induce truncal acne in bodybuilders. So I think my take-home messages from it is that if you have acne, have a trial of dairy-free, you know, for a couple of months and see if it works for you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And if it does, you know, happy days. Um, and I think um, it's quite easy to give up dairy now and change over onto a plant-based alternative. I will just say at that point, please don't choose organic plant-based alternatives. <laughs> Choose the ones that are fortified with calcium and iodine, um, and and you know have a get your you know protein and calcium from from other sources, your iodine from other sources. So it's perfectly easy now. There's lots of products to do that, um, and I, th I think it's worth a, an individual you know a trial at an individual level. Yeah, definitely. It's it's super easy, I, I guess, these days to get those plant milks. But iodine, like you mentioned, is is super important because even though milk isn't the best source of iodine it's the most common source of iodine in people's diets at least in the uk anyway because uh, of some of the agricultural methods and certainly touching on the podcast that we did before on fertility that's super important um thinking about iodine uh intake right yeah absolutely and um you know you can get iodine from fish but if you're vegetarian vegan um you know it's a bit more challenging yeah. Is there a, um, a, a suggestion that the sugars in certain uh, milk products are also exacerbating? I, I suppose this touches on the, the next point about westernized diets and uh, uh, diets that contain a lot of highly refined sugars and, and carbohydrates. And um, is there a suggestion that it's the milk, that the, the milk sugar specifically that could be activating these pathways or is that uh, a separate I don't Certainly. think that anyone knows that. I think it's thought that the amino acid breakdown mm. stimulates the IGF-1, but also, you know, there've been other studies that have looked at, for example, chocolate and jelly beans. Um, and they did a small chocolate crossover study beans. with that. <laughs> and, looked, and they found that the chocolate did increase the acne, but was that, that was milk chocolate. Was that the milk in it or was that, because the, the jelly beans didn't increase acne and that's the sugar, right? So mm. um, what was it in dairy or was it 
dairy or was it chocolate so I you know I don't think we really understand that yet and I don't so I, I think it's probably not the sugar it's probably you know the IGF-1 production but um but coming back to then westernized diets you know they are high fat uh, high refined carbs um and low fiber and certainly all of those things increase the IGF-1 signaling and also altered retinoid signaling and you just don't see acne in people with low GI diets say for example like Papua New Guinea or somewhere people don't have acne and is that related then to um, the fact that they are eating low processed uh, you know raw uh, whole food uh, with high fiber low GI that that's what their diet contains um, so it's probably that you've got that high fat high fiber uh, sorry, high fat, high dairy, low fiber as well may well be disturbing your microbiota. Mm. And we know we've just been talking about how microbiota impacts the skin. So all you need to do is shift your microbiota and then you um, change your intestinal permeability. You let all of those things in and that gets deposited in the sk skin, which can then lead to inflammation. So it's it's quite a sort of subtle interplay and really quite complicated. And it's probably not just one single factor. It's probably all of these factors. And yeah. it might be that actually it's not dairy per se, but it's about having a diet that is, you know, low GI, so whole grains and fruit and veg and antioxidants and you know, fermented food, nurturing your, your gut health that allows you to have dairy or allows you to have the occasional, you know, piece of junk food, because actually your diet is so good otherwise that your micro your gut health is good which helps your skin health so it's difficult to unpick it all at the moment i think yeah yeah i think that's such a good point because when you when you think about what a westernized diet is it's got so many attributes that could be problematic you've got the high sugar the high fat uh you've got uh, the abundant source of those branch chain amino acids as well that we're talking about that could be driving uh acne um and i'll be honest i don't know too much about the dietary habits of the papua new guineans but i imagine it's probably better than us <laughs> is it is it relatively low in protein as well um i think i don't think it's low in protein i think it's as far as i'm aware i'm not a papua new guinea diet <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, i think it's just the fact that it's low pro you know it's, they're not eating processed food but as you say is it if you go back to sort of Western diet, is it the fact that it's the dairy causing this or is it mm. because of the IGF-1 route or is it um, the carbohydrates causing the IGF-1 or is it that the combination of all those things are knocking off your gut microbiota? So, or is it a combination of all of those things? Yeah. But I think in, you know, Papua New Guinea, you're not going to be, you're going to be on, you know, high GI, unprocessed, you know, lean meat. Uh, it's going to have a totally different diet and, it's which of those factors is which of those factors is preventative for acne is protective yeah possibly them all yeah yeah absolutely so a low gi diet high in fiber lots of roughage certainly going to be improving your microbiome and you're not going to be having uh, as many mcdonald's or or insert fast food chain uh meal um, and also you've got omega-3 as well if you think about it you know that sort of the western diet versus like papua new guinea you've got your yeah. high omega-6 high low omega-3 in your western diet which is pro-inflammatory mm. versus a healthier diet would be high omega-3 low omega-6 so an omega-3 actually decreases igf-1 so you can see how it's involved and in, possibly involved in the mechanism um but there are just not enough studies to support at the moment whether i say taking an omega-3 supplement would help but um certainly an interesting thing for the future and then um antioxidants i think it's fascinating that lower vitamin a and e was found in people with acne now is that chicken or egg you know it's really interesting um but topical antioxidants like in green tea have been found in animal studies to actually um sort of feed into these pathways so one of them is one proliferation pathway is mTOR and so actually did have an impact on mTOR but you know who knows sort of talking I know that we've talked a bit before about animal models and things but um so this is if you put if you're dropping something like green tea uh on cells in a petri dish that's your sort of cellular uh, model of it it's a very very long way from a human and i think you know we need to exercise caution in those but as with any of these things 
fruit and vegetables, antioxidants, polyphenols, they're going to you know help you. Yeah, actually, I think that's a nice uh, point to do a little sidebar there about how we translate research from a laboratory environment like that, where you're literally dropping uh, a solution onto a bunch of cells that you put in a Petri dish versus consuming said product uh, either as a supplement, a nutraceutical, or as part of your diet and actually having that effect uh, you know, on you that's actually clinically um, relevant. Um, you've done a PhD, you've uh, you've seen both sides of it and you're a frontline uh, uh, doctor as well uh, as being a nutritionist. So you, why don't you talk us through like how big a difference that is between the lab and what you put on your plate or what you take in a, in a pill? Sure. So I have to say that um, even though I was an academic clinical fellow, so an academic doctor and had done time in the lab and things, it wasn't really until I did my PhD that I actually understood this. And so mm. I think, you know, for the for most doctors or a lay person, it's actually quite hard understanding all of these different things and why they're used and the pros and cons with them. So if I just sort of break down what the different models are, and I use the word model because um, it's a sort of a way of testing out a theory. So you're in science, you're always trying to test out that theory, you know, asking a question, um, is your theory right or not? So the easiest way to, to look at something um, is by growing cells in a dish and that's your in vitro method and um it's actually really quite hard to grow cells if you just if i took skin punch biopsy from you and try to grow your cells in a dish it's actually really quite hard and it's only recently that people have got a bit better at it and they're now able to to, to do a bit better but for a long time, um, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute, but for a long time, people have used what's called cell lines. And that's where they sort of immortalize cells that carry on growing and um, are happy to grow in plastic. And uh, one example of those is famous called HeLa cells. And that's actually from one woman called Henrietta Lacks. And those are her cervical cells. I mean, you know, most cell lines now are contaminated at some point with, by HeLa. So you've really got to know... Um, what you're growing the fact that it's happy growing on plastic because most cell lines you put the cell on plastic and it just gets off not growing on that and won't grow so you've got to make sure that uh, your cell grows and it's, it's happy growing and you give it the right conditions so you feed it with some media you keep it nice and warm and you give it some oxygen and it's really important that every now and again you actually check that you know what you're growing because you can't tell down a microscope what it is it could actually be anything and as I just said lots of cell lines get contaminated you know it's really easy just to to get a cell in the wrong place um and those those that sort of tissue culture it's called um it's actually really different from from our cells growing in the body because they've they've got totally different growth factors they're probably um they're not used to a 3d environment there's no extracellular signaling nothing and and so what information you can gather from that is actually really quite limited and that's why people more recently have sort of developed these ways of taking some cells from a primary culture so going back to your like skin tissue biopsy or something and they're able to now grow them in the laboratory into these things called organoids and they're sort of like 3d structures um which almost which are better at mimicking uh, what's actually happening in your in your in your in your body but still you know there's no blood supply to them there's no you know there are no external factors or hormones yeah. or all the rest of it so it still is quite limited and then you've got um animal models and although you know i think it's really difficult and challenging to think about testing on animals it is also you know the only way that we can test something is safe before you know we, we put it first in humans and drugs aren't always safe we need to you know test that they are first and um and so that's why you know animal studies are are done for to really forward the field of, of, of medicine and, and try to cure people from, you know, all sorts of diseases, cancer included. So if you've got an animal model, you can either um, induce the disease in the animal, and we'll talk about that in psoriasis later, um, or you can um, take a bit of uh, tissue from something else like a human and put it in the animal and test it. Um, you can get a mouse and you can induce cancer, for example, or model of disease and then test it. The problem with that is that, for example, radiation induced cancer is not the same as a cancer that just spontaneously occurs. Mm -hmm. We'll have different genetics and, and so might not be the best model to test it. But in a, you know, it's, if you've got nothing else, 
then that's going to be your best model. So it does still mm. have its limitations. And then now you can do um, what's called knock-in, knock-out studies, where you can actually specifically edit uh, even mice and um, put in a gene of interest, take out a gene of interest and see how that um, affects um, growth or a number of different characteristics or how they respond to drugs. And then right at the top of the tree, you've got your human, so in vitro studies and those are using healthy volunteers, mainly men, and they're testing um, molecules that have been tested on animals already. So you can see that going from that initial hypothesis, that initial question that you want to, to to test and to ask, you've normally gone through cell lines or organoids, and then you put it into a mouse model, and then you've got it into a human. And all the way through, you're testing not just um, does A equals B, but you're testing, well, what about uh, how can I, can I do it in reverse? Can I do it in an orthogonal? So an alter alternative method to really be sure that the answer that I'm seeing is correct. So you can see that to get to a human study actually takes years of research um, to get in all of those other, other things lined up first. So it's, um, it's very difficult and expensive to get there. Um, and, and also I think then sort of looking at reading papers, it's really important to know that the difference between a, a study that was done in a human versus um, a topical application of something on a cell line um, is very different. And, and that uh, through all those sort of reasons I've just sort of outlined, I mean, Rita really exert a lot of caution. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, for, for folks listening or if they see a headline and they click to the paper and then you read the abstract, maybe you don't read the whole paper, you can get an idea of just how far along the down the, the chain uh, the, the relevant conclusion is by looking at where they tested this was this an animal model was this a cell line was this in humans how large a study and then you get into the nuances of the significance uh, the number of humans used and all this kind of stuff um so and ju just to give people an idea i don't know whether you can actually put a number on this but let's say you have a positive result in uh, a cell line what's the likelihood that that's actually going to uh, elicit you know the creation of a drug or the use of a of a nutraceutical or some certain su certain supplement what what's the likelihood that that's actually going to translate into something that's that's going to work i can't give you a figure for that but i can tell you that say for example um well like doing my phd that you know i found lots of positive thing or positive things where uh drug a did uh, have an effect on mm. our cell line for example but the the problem is with it is that first of all if you think so I I did it my PhD was on osteosarcoma so it's a rare form of bone cancer and it's actually really um, heterogeneous so the genetics of it are really quite different in different people um, and so trying to study a disease like that is really quite difficult and lots of diseases are like that um, you might be able to sort of divide them up into subtype or have a biomarker to sort of delineate groups and things. Um, but actually then I didn't just use one cell line. I used a panel of 18 cell lines in order mm. to try to, to represent the different, you know, a, a greater depth of the disease. So trying to find one drug then that actually had a significant effect in all of those cell lines. I, I did find a couple of those. Um, but then I, I didn't, I think if you're doing rigorous science, you have to then work out quite the mechanism behind it and, and test it in an orthogonal way. So that's sort of, you know, coming at it from a different angle. So while you might get an initial hit on a drug screen, then trying to work out either a mechanistically plausible explanation for it, or then testing it in a different way, either with, so I use like siRNA, so that's all inhibitory RNA to knock different genes out. Um, actually then a lot of the hits from your drug screen don't go anywhere mm. and then from that then if you actually find something that does work and then you put it into an animal you're still seeing quite often quite small gains even in the animal um it's quite hard to see an effect as i said you've got your radiation your so either your radiation induced osteosarcoma or your you can do um what's called you can actually put some of the cell lines in or you can um so you're testing it like that into the mouse um so it's quite hard actually then to be sure 
that even if you do see something in the mouth, that it's actually relevant for the disease in the humans because you're still quite limited to those cell lines mm. and your and the mouse model. So it's really hard at each step. You know, there's a significant drop off. And that's why research costs a huge amount of money because there are so many dead ends. And um, it's it's really challenging to find those those, you know, next drugs um, because you know, years worth of research has to go into to doing all of the, the background before you even see the drug and, you know, with your GP or, you know, whoever's prescribing it years and years, you know, 10 plus years normally have gone into that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully that will give people an idea of why it costs billions of pounds to do research into molecules, why there is a, a patent uh, legislation that gives drug companies, I think it's 17 years is the amount uh, of time that they have, um, uh, uh ownership uh of 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 said product um and it's a really expensive business and we're going to come back to this actually because there's a bunch of other supplements that are readily available where that kind of rigor hasn't actually been uh, uh conducted because there's a way around because they can already sell the product um, because there's enough hype around it so but we'll, we'll leave that i think that's that's really interesting for for people to understand just how molecules are created and and how we uh, form those into drugs and and the amount of research that goes into that let's bring it to atopic um uh psoriasis because this is where sort of your 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 experience and research has had an effect um first of all what is psoriasis for for people at home um, psoriasis is a sort of scaly skin condition or sort of a hyper proliferative skin skin condition. Um, it's actually not that common. You, so hardly any children have it. You see it more in, in adults, up to 10%. And it's associated with immune activation, but really the sort of mechanism of it is quite unclear. Mm. But interestingly, it's actually associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular syndrome and metabolic uh, cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome. And it's now thought that you have altered gut microbiota um, that might impact and, and cause some of this. So they've tested that using Imiquad, um, which is a toll like seven receptor agonist, and that's to induce a mouse model of this. And the topical IMQ actually then alters gut microbiota in mice and um, and it increases the marker of inflammation. It also increases the volume of their spleen, which is another sort of surrogate marker of, you know, that there's chronic inflammation going on as well. And it's therefore thought that it's the gut, um, the gut issues that you've got, the sort of dysbiosis, this altered gut microbiota that then, as we talked about before, then leads to that leakiness and inflammation. And then you actually have the, the deposits of, of that leakiness and the stuff that's absorbed, the toxin, the, the partially broken down food and things into the skin. And that that then um, is related to um, psoriasis increase. But it's also that... Um, maybe bacteria. Now they don't quite know how this um, happens, whether it's bacteria from the gut are traveling to the skin or whether it's the change in environment because of the inflammation in the gut leads to a change in inflammation, a change in environment in the skin to then certain bacteria then flourish because mm. Staph lentus is one of the bacteria here that's actually been seen in patients with psoriasis and may well be driving some of that. So as part of the, that sort of study they did in the IMQ treated mice, they have found all of these changes. And interestingly, um, so one of the other things that's quite difficult to explain about keg pathways. So keg <laughs> pathways are um, it's like this massive database. And if you think of in the cell, you've got so many different cellular processes and proteins and trying to work out what on earth does what and how they all interlink and there are so many different pathways so keg have this amazing resource where you can sort of try to to really understand the, the molecular biology a bit more because you can see like a sort of metabolic pathway or a cardiovascular disease pathway or a growth pathway and how all of those proteins have linked together in a sequential fashion um, and it's at a sort of greater sort of more superficial understanding it's sort of like high level functioning of of cells really so they've um, did this, the, the people in the study that did this IMQ uh, model for the mice, they did um, what's called metagenomics on 
on the mice. So they sequenced all of the, the DNA that they collected from the skin, from the psoriatic regions. And they actually found there was a difference in keg pathways and that actually the cardiovascular risk and metabolic disease pathways were, were, were different, which maybe then explains why psoriasis is linked with cardiovascular yeah. disease and metabolic syndrome. So how it all links is actually, I think, incredibly fascinating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We didn't mention it with um, with acne, but I, I guess it's probably more pertinent here. Would, would there be a role for probiotics um, and in, in the treatment of psoriasis, other autoimmune conditions and, and skin disease? I, I think that there probably is a role in the future. I, th- I don't think that enough is known about it at the moment. Mm. Um, and there aren't the studies to support that. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, may well be something of the future. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether they're topical probiotics yeah. or whether you know you're going to be taking gut make microbiotics or, or quite mm. you know we think of respiratory conditions as well i know that's a bit off topic but will that be yeah. nebulized probiotics you know it's yeah. really prebiotics would prebiotics work better because there's so many there's so many sort of nuances to it all that um it's not just about increasing bacteria or specific strains necessarily it's about you know that um, alpha beat the diversity and also that cellular stu- or studies have shown as well that say post antibiotics ha- taking probiotics can actually prevent recolonization of your own yeah. gut so so how it, I, I just think we we're such in such our infancy in all of this we just need to know so much more information yeah yeah that that was actually flying in the face of what i thought would be a pragmatic decision um to to take probiotics after having uh, some form of antibiotic therapy because you want to try and recolonize the gut but uh, uh, I, I can't remember the, the mechanism whether it's uh, through creating a biofilm that prevents recolonization or something like that there were two mm. big two big studies published in cell you know really high impact factor journals that showed mm. that um the probiotics either did nothing post antibiotics or pre- or in about 30 40% actually prevented recolonization i think you know mm. it does naturally feel or certainly lots of clinicians have used them to think oh well you know it must help me i'm replacing my probiotics but if i'm replacing my bacteria but if they are preventing reconstitution then that's that's certainly a a risk factor that I think that most people don't associate with probiotics or a supplement. You think that supplements are, are actually good for you or, and the worst they can do is waste your money on, you know, they're maybe expensive. They're not going to harm you. I think that's most people's view of supplements, but then to think actually maybe this could be doing me some harm because it might be preventing my gut from reconstituting is, is a bit more of a worry, I think. Yeah. And, and like you just mentioned there, you really have to take an orthogonal approach to uh, how we utilize um, probiotics as a treatment. You know, it's not just about the strain or the type. It's about the formulation. It's how you use it, what the method of delivery is, whether it's nebulized. So for folks at home, that's uh, when you breathe it in um, uh, versus topical. You know, I'm already seeing a lot of probiotic preparations in the skin and beauty industry uh, being sort of uh, suggested as a way to prevent aging and all the rest of it. Um, I, I mean, I haven't come across anything personally. I haven't actually looked uh, for for uh, skin formulations and whether they're having any benefit. I mean, in the future, maybe, um, but right now I, I'm kind of skeptical. Well, I, th- I think it's a really interesting area for development. And I think if you tag, you know, the words probiotic on it, people think, oh, it must be by science or, you know, oh, it must be must be good for you. But actually, you know, they're well, there's been some mouse studies which have shown that specific strains of bacteria actually um, prevent UV damage and that can actually increase skin health, increase like fur, uh, the shininess and the thickness of fur, all, you know, related to skin health. So certainly skin bacteria and gut bugs do seem to have a, a massive role in um, in aging and health prevention and, and healthy aging of skin and health of skin. So maybe in the future, probiotics will be a benefit, but I just think that we don't know enough about what normal skin looks like, what the, you know, what inter-ethnicity and inter-ethnic variation, inter-geographic variation, you know, how does diet and um, how do all of these other factors link before we can then start modulating stuff. And that to me just feels like we just don't know anywhere near enough. Maybe these are the things of the future. Maybe we'll all be you know smearing we won't be using moisturizer anymore we'll be using our probiotics on our face who knows but i just feel we need more information
Talking of aging, uh, so collagen. Uh, collagen is uh, super hot right now. I feel like I'm Bruno there. <laughs> it's super hot right now. Um, it's it's an interesting one because I'm getting asked about it a lot. I, I said to you last week, I don't know that much about it. I haven't really done much of a deep dive into it, but it's... Um, I know obviously it's a, it's a factor of skin and, and during aging, you lose collagen as well as a whole bunch of elastic fibers uh, along, with the synth- uh, along with the synthesis of uh, hyaluronic acid. I always uh, get that pronunciation wrong, which is why you're, you, know, you, you see uh, beauty creams with hyaluronic acid in. Um, from my understanding, the only anti-aging claim you can make uh, for a product is if it's got uh, a significant amount of SP- SPF in. Um, to qualify for you know the UV blocking um, uh, effects of a, of a cream, which has been shown to reduce aging, uh, but collagen appears to have some potential benefits. I would say I'm saying that tentatively. Uh, why don't we talk about what uh, what, what collagen uh, preparations there are out there and, uh, and and your your perspective on it? So collagen, yeah, I agree. I think it's a really interesting topic because it's actually really nuanced that it's just not clear. Um, mm. So collagen is a large protein. Most of the supplements are, you know, oral, you're taking those collagen supplements by mouth. Um, and so when you ingest a protein, it's digested and so broken down into smaller subunits and that's your um, peptides and amino acids before it can be absorbed. So if you're eating that, your supplement or you're having a piece of steak, Um, all of those proteins will be broken down into amino acids. So first of all, you have to think that anything you're taking in will be broken down. And then it's quite hard to see then why it would be rebuilt specifically into collagen. Normally, you know, the body knows what it needs and it's synthesizing all sorts of different peptides and, uh, you know, proteins within the liver. Um, Why would it specifically reconstitute you back into collagen? And even if it did, would it definitely travel to the skin? Mm. So that's, first of all, sort of the question behind it, the sort of mechanistic question. There have been a couple, you know, a few studies that have looked at it and, and actually found that with collagen supplementation, it has improved skin hydration and wrinkle count. Um, but I think they're quite subjective um, mm. markers and it's quite hard then you know to draw conclusions but possibly one of the more interesting studies actually analyzed skin protein fluids which i think is a more objective marker and they did find mm. that pro collagen fibrillin and elastin all actually increased so i think it's quite difficult then to know what that means um first of all you don't know what the diet of these people was when they were taking it there's no record of that at all in these studies um mm. you know how how high quality was their protein intake and secondly just because you've got um these proteins that are raised in this in your blood or skin fluid does that mean that they're having an anti-aging effect so studies have looked and they found sort of increased skin plumping and doesn't appear to be associated with side effects so I think probably what you can, what I take from this is that I really don't understand the mechanism at all because it doesn't make sense to me that it'd be broken down. Why would it be resynthesized? But maybe it is. Maybe this, we don't understand that. And mm-hmm. if it is, then is it having an effect? I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Um, I'm not convinced by the subjective element of these uh, the, the outcomes that they've used. They've used small studies. We don't know the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably safe. So if you probably the only downside here is cost. If you want mm. to out like, you know, spend your money on collagen supplements, it might help. Um, it might not. And it probably isn't going to do you any harm. But if it were me, I'd spend money on SPF 50 and I'd wear it every single day, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is what I do. As Caroline, I think Hiram says, if it's light enough to, to read a book, you should be wearing sunscreen. <laughs> that's a good advice there <laughs> that's my take-home message there you go was there a specific type of collagen that you found um was uh that would like a standout like the, the ones that I, I i looked at a couple of papers um and the ones that i've come across include collagen hydro hydro hydrolysate collagen tripeptide and collagen dipeptide 
I don't know what forms they use, whether this was um, a marine-based collagen, a bone broth collagen, like, you know, whether it was a supplemental form, whether it was a powder, like literally no idea. Um, but is, is there one that stands out? No, I think I think that they're all really small studies. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of flaws in the studies and, um, and there are a range of different products. It's not known if there's a better one, uh, you know, you know what the we still just don't understand if there really is a mechanistic link anyway um so it's impossible then to sort of work out from a mechanism point of view which one would be better and the studies don't suggest or point to to one being better or or one even being you know for sure that it does actually work as as you know i don't think any of these are grade one level evidence that you'd be you know really confident to say no this absolutely works anyway so it's they're small studies they're all quite flawed there's a range of different products i think you know it's almost like flip a coin and choose a collagen to be honest yeah and and that you know that sort of comes back to how difficult it is to choose a what does a high quality supplement look like It's, it's almost impossible to tell i think a lot of the time yeah, yeah, totally. I, 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 I was laughing to myself because uh, some of the um, the output measures uh, of the studies that I was looking at, just I've never come across it before. So there was uh, changes in visually assessed crow's feet scores, changes in skin wrinkling parameters, skin roughness, uh, uh, what was this, uh, smoothness depth. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, like, how validated these scores are. I'm sure, you know, maybe there are, but it was just, uh, it just goes to show, like, how little we know about this. And, and coming back to our previous discussion about your, your PhD and the translation of science from a cell line to a product that you can put into your shel- shelves, there's already enough hype around collagen, longevity molecules that you you'll see being sold on the internet and all the rest of it such that you don't need to do these rigorous studies because it's available and people will buy it so this is a multi-billion dollar industry already without having to put any of the research and development behind it um which is quite sad in a way i guess it is because i think we'll we'll actually never know if there's any benefit of collagen because no one will ever fund the study um Mm. the one interesting thing about collagen is that it might actually help wound healing so if you're if you had an operation, I think that's the one time I'd recommend it, but the rest of the time, probably not. But yeah, absolutely. And just to go back to that. So um, how research is funded in, this, in the UK is actually mainly due to charities. And that's really often according to which charitable groups have the the loudest, you know, the loudest voice and the, and the biggest uh, you know, patient group and patient advocacy. And so lots of the smaller or less well-known diseases are often forgotten in that. Um, but charities make uh, you know, have a huge role. And for my, um, my PhD was funded by, um, by Bone Cancer Research Trust and also by Breast Cancer Now. And um, two charities that do a huge amount of work, you know, people out there running marathons funded my PhD. My PhD cost, you know, at least £250,000. I don't know the, the, the final, I'm sure that there was lots of, you know, uh, extra bits of plastic you know tissues and bottles that you know maybe didn't quite get onto the final bill so I'm saying upwards of that you know that's a quarter of a million pounds and while you know I sort of pushed pushed forward the world of osteosarcoma a little bit you know I didn't find a cure for it and and um you can just see how expensive it is how difficult it is and that's three years of you know full-time research you know really trying to unpick all of those those things and and how difficult it is and and why it takes time and costs lots of money. And if you are supporting charities, please go out there and carry on doing it because you really are the backbone of the research in the UK and it's so important. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, and I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, the potential for uh, collagen research looking at recovery because what, one thing that I, I think probably doesn't get enough attention and I'd love to see people running marathons for it. Maybe maybe I will at some point if I ever do a full marathon. I've only done a half and that was horrible for me. Um, but pressure ulcers. So pressure ulcers and the breakdown of skin that we know happens very commonly, particularly to vulnerable elderly patients in hospital because of prolonged stays as well as uh, sarcopenia, um, you know, malnutrition, big issue. Um, whether collagen supplements could prevent pressure sores that lead to, you know, extended hospital stays as well as infections and all the rest of it. That's what I would be really, really interested in. Um, and there has to be rigorous studies for uh, collagen to be uh, supplemented in, in those vulnerable groups as well. So if you see me running a marathon, it'll probably be for pressure sores. 
<laughs> it's not very sexy, I know, but. <laughs> I'm sort of talking back then about hospital and patients and things. I think this is like absolutely incredible how I'm going to stick myself out on a limb here. Having, so having worked in hospitals for, you know, well over a decade, I know that the food in many of them is perhaps not quite what you'd like it to be. And that the more and more we know about how the gut health you know, when was the last time you saw fermented food on a menu in mm-hmm. a hospital? You know, I know as a as a you know staff member, the food was you know it was pretty fast food a lot of the time. It wasn't you know take your own food in. You know, if you're a patient, and also as a, a mother of a child who's been in hospital, um, it's it's a, it's not great food a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And um, and you think how important food is for gut health and how it has such far ranging effects on you know, your skin, your spiritual tract, your mood, your brain, your response to medication. It's just so important. I just think we need to to do better and we need to understand it more and and to to really optimize our gut health. It's the foundation of everything. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. There there is some work. I'm holding my breath for it. Well, I'm, I'm not, I would say I'm not holding my breath for it because we've seen a number of hostile reviews in the past, but there's something quite special about this one. So Philip Shelley was the um, chair of the recent hostile review that started pre-pandemic. And obviously it's had a whole bunch of, you know, delays with everything going on. Um, but they have made some really, really interesting suggestions. Uh, something that I'm getting involved in is the NHS chef award of the year so it's basically to highlight innovation and excellence in nhs catering in in the the public sector environment and so they're showcasing a whole bunch of different chefs from different regions looking at how they're collaborating across dietitians and nurses as well as patient support groups as well to deliver safe uh delicious food that's actually healthy as well and i think my sort of contribution is a trying to prop them up as much as possible, but also feeding them a bit of knowledge about the gut microbiota, uh, increasing fiber intake, all these different things that the dietitians will be saying as well. But again, just hearing it from a frontline clinician, I think just sticks in a little different way. Um, So there are some things happening, I think. Um, We're probably a little bit further away from like sauerkraut being served on the side of of a hostel tray, but you know, we can only dream. I hope, so. I hope so. Yeah, I hope one day. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, Dr. Harriet, thank you so much for coming back on the pod. This is brilliant. Uh, as always, you're such a fountain of knowledge, and um, uh, I'll, I'll have to. I will join your pod. I'm, I, I will definitely come on your podcast. But um, it, it seems to be doing really well, uh, regardless. Well, thank you. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's always a pleasure coming and talking. So, thank you so much for inviting me. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast. It's always a pleasure having Dr. Harriet on. Um, Two things that we forgot to mention, if you are suffering uh, with acne or you want to talk to um, someone about your skin, go to talkhealthpartnership.com. That's talkhealthpartnership.com. They provide free acne support and community support. Even mild acne can cause considerable psychological distress. So just go check them out if you feel that you need it. Um, the other thing that Dr. Harriet forgot to mention during the pod is uh, her s- statement from her is that the skin is an embryological sibling of the brain. So it's formed from the ectoderm, both of which are formed from the ectoderm, which can explain why there is such a rich neuroendocrine innovation um, that's only just being uh, understood now. So the connection between the skin and brain might actually be something that is um, uh, a result of our development uh, in utero, which is, I think is absolutely fascinating. So um, the connection there might be uh, because of uh, how, how we've uh, developed and, and evolved as humans. Summary. Um, so aim for a diet rich in antioxidants and polyphenols, i.e. principle number one, eat colorful, eat a range of colorful fruits and vegetables and go for those darkly colored uh, ingredients like your berries, your red grapes, your red cabbage. Those have got tons of different phytonutrients in, some of which you might have heard me talk about before like resveratrol or 
um, anthocyanins, uh, but and beta lanes that you find in beetroot. Um, but honestly, uh, getting a selection of colors is the best thing you can do. And they also have a lot of uh, uh, precursors to vitamin A in as well, um, which we know are very good for skin. Low glycemic index carbohydrates. So we're looking at whole grains. Brown rice, wild rice, bulgur wheat. My favorite right now is something called frika, um, which is a, a very common ingredient that you'll find in uh, Lebanese food, uh, Iraqi food, uh, around that area, uh, the Levantine. Um, it's a delicious product. It is gluten-containing though, so just be careful if you do have an intolerance. Um, it's got like this green tinge to it as well. It's incredible. Um, so definitely check out Freeka. That's spelled um, free and then K-A-H. And you can buy them online as well. So do experiment with that. Um, third thing, eating more omega-3. So, you know, having a couple of days uh, in the week where you have uh, oily fish, whether it be mackerel, uh, whether it be sardines, anchovies are some of my favorite. Uh, or if you are plant-based, definitely getting uh, a plant-based omega-3 supplement um, that is uh, uh, formed from algae supplementation um, and making sure that you're, you're getting that. I am actually an advocate of taking those supplements um, and trialing them anyway because uh, they're unlikely to do harm. Uh, although there was a recent paper, actually, uh, I should do this on another podcast, but a recent paper uh, looking at a link between omega-3 uh, supplementation and atrial fibrillation, which is something I used to suffer with myself, um, but it's an association, so not a causative uh, link that's been found yet. Uh, reducing dairy consumption. So a lot of people do have intolerances to dairy, um, the type of dairy. Uh, it really d depends, I think, on the person uh, consuming it. So you might want to try a fortified plant milk instead, which is something that Dr. Harry recommended as well. Um, also, anything that encourages a healthy gut bacterial balance. So you're looking at getting lots of different types of fiber in your diet. And that is basically a plant forward or a plant focused diet. Uh, with mostly fruit, vegetables, but also trying things like fermented foods, fermented drinks, um, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, uh, those sort of probiotic, naturally probiotic foods. The specific strains of probiotics we don't really fully understand, uh, but if you were going to try any, uh, then a lactobacilli uh, containing um, uh, strain uh, as well as bifidobacteria. Uh, but as we discussed in the podcast, you know, any supplement doesn't come without its potential harm. So you just want to make sure um, that you're getting everything you can from your diet first and then supplementation is second. You can trial avoiding not only dairy, but uh, avoiding milk chocolate to see if you find any benefits. Certainly the highly refined carbohydrates in your diets that you might find in things like refined breads, refined pastas, um, removing those for a small time period around uh, one to two months making sure that you you still got your fiber intake as well would be super useful um it could potentially be useful i should say um and then you know trying new antioxidant rich ingredients whether it be matcha tea or uh, a, a dried berry mix uh, or uh, a, a green smoothie as long as you're not putting fruit in the smoothie or you're putting largely vegetables in i think that's a great way of uh, of getting uh, lots of different um, nutrient rich ingredients into your diet as well so you might want to try that too aim for a diet rich in all those different uh, elements and uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about stress uh, and the psychological impact on skin but we are going to be talking about that on the next podcast uh, so do check that out and uh, have a great week and i will see you here next time even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.